This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Francesco Origi, a veterinary microbiologist and pathologist at the University of Messina and University of Bern. We'll be discussing the detection of ranid herpivirus 3 in frogs. Welcome, Dr. Origi. Thank you very much, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're very happy to have you back. What's the situation with frogs globally? Well, unfortunately, it's not a good situation. I think that, let's say, uh, becoming more and more evident that frogs and amphibians in general are undergoing a massive global decline, actually, which is really very concerning. And just to give a a quick number, of the uh, 42,000 threatened species, actually, that there are on this planet, 41% are amphibians. And so they make up almost half of all the threatened species. So this is actually very, very concerning. What's contributing to this decline? Well, this is actually not a very easy question to answer to because it's probably what is defined as a sort of a multifactorial cause or actually group of causes. Surely the habitat loss has been shown to be really a significant issue. The human impact, direct and indirect impact is also, let's say, a pretty significant problem. And actually, more recently, and this is really, let's say, something that we're very, very interested in too, infectious diseases, so infectious agents, actually have surfaced as significant contributors to this decline. What happens to biodiversity when frogs start dying off? This is actually a great question. It's kind of interesting to think that instinctively, Actually, we we think at everything within the natural world or any way, let's say, in general, as some kind of standalone element. Instead, the more and the more we investigate, the more we study nature, wildlife, animals, let's say, nature in general, we realize that we are really all incredibly interconnected. And so frogs really belong to this incredibly entangled reality. And so even just as a single species of frogs actually or of amphibian would be lost, we really cannot predict, okay, the, how can I say, the really extent of this impact. And not only related to, let's say, animal themselves, amphibian themselves, but also related to humans. There was a paper actually that recently came out and showed how a massive extinction, actually more than of a massive extinction, a very significant decline of uh, the frog population in a region could be linked to a spike in malaria in people in the same region. So basically, the loss, the decline, the reduction of the number of frogs could be correlated to essentially the increase of vectors, so basically of arthropods, which actually were essentially not eaten by these amphibians. And so their increased number that became a problem for the human population itself of that region. And so this is really show us, let's say, how frogs and essentially any species is really relevant, not only in terms of biodiversity, in terms of conservation, but also as human health. And I think this is really critical to understand. You know, we are uh, more and more we hear about, for example, one health, considering that actually we're all together And so what is relevant, let's say, for the health of human beings inevitably is connected with the health of animals and the other way around. 
And also now we're also talking about planetary health because it's not just a matter of a connection and of interdependence in a way between human beings and animals, but also the environment, the planet. So it's really a very, very complex topic, and uh, frogs are a very important element of this. What role do ranaviruses and fungi play in this die-off? Yeah, actually, ranavirus and a specific group of fungi, actually, there's two species which are mainly, let's say, characterized as concern on amphibian disease, and these are commonly referred to chytrids. And so, especially Batrachochytrid dendrobatidis and Batrachochytrid salamandrivorans. So, ranavirus and uh, these other fungi have been shown to be very significant pathogens and to significantly contribute to actually local extinction and extirpation of entire population of amphibians. Uh, the most recently discovered of this agent, which is Patrachochytrum salamandrivorans, which is normally referred as uh, B-cell, is a fungal agent which actually has been detected a few years ago in Europe and has been shown okay, to be directly related and responsible of uh, literally the extinction of entire population of fire salamanders in different European regions. And so now there's major concerns that this agent might actually cross the ocean somehow. And uh, let's say there's a, a lots of concern if it would come, for example, to U.S., the impact might be massive. And so these are really very, very important agents. And uh, however, we know that these are clearly relevant and important, but I think that we need to keep our eyes open because when we talk, for example, about amphibians, we talk about several thousands of different species. And so it's probably unlikely that out of this several thousands of species, probably only three agents would be really relevant. And this is actually where we're going in terms of our research and our investigation, try to figure out what else besides, let's say, ranavirus and chytrids is out there that could be a problem. And what is Ranid Herpavirus 3? I haven't heard of this one previously. It's a novel virus, right? It is. And actually, let's say this is really uh, relates to what I was saying in my previous answer. So we have been running extensive investigations, try, let's say, to look and find emerging agents or novel agents, which actually could represent an issue for amphibians. And uh, while actually, let's say, investigating this while running this research project, we actually found this new virus, which we call the Rani Herpes Virus 3. And we published originally the first paper describing this virus in 2017. And interestingly enough, this probably was not really a new virus, meaning that we actually characterized and so we were able to identify which virus was, but actually there have been previous reports which describe the infection of frogs with this virus. However, it was really not characterized. So this investigation led to the understanding that we were talking about a herpes virus, but let's say we really didn't know what kind of herpes virus was. And so with our investigation, we were able to determine which herpes virus was, and we could name it in a way, because up to that time, only two other herpes viruses had been discovered and characterized in amphibians, which were Rani herpes virus 1 and 2. And so this was 
the third okay, of the group. And this was really incredible also because once we published this paper and people all around Europe actually started reading it, they realized that actually had been seen lesions, which are classic lesions associated with infection of this herpes virus. And so we now know that this virus is not present only in Switzerland, actually where we originally found it, but is present in other countries in Europe. And so it's probably very, very much widespread. And uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, that many years passed by without actually being able to pinpoint the lesions with the actual nature of this virus. There's a similar virus apparently found on toads. Which one is that? Yes, this is correct. And this was actually another very interesting finding, let's say, I think, of this investigation that we were carrying out. Pretty much at the same time when we discovered this uh, new virus in frog, we observed that very similar lesions associated with this herpes virus in frogs were also present in toads. The main difference was the color of the lesion. So infected frogs generally show gray patches on their skin. And these gray patches are invariably associated with the presence of this virus. Well, on toads, we started to observe that there were several toads with brown patches very similar to the gray patches that we saw in frogs. And so we checked those lesions, thinking that there might have been something similar. And funny enough, we found another herpes virus, which is morphologically and genetically very closely related to Rani herpes virus 3, but it's different. It's a distinct virus. It's a distinct herpes virus. And we tentatively call this virus bufonid herpes virus 1, which is actually was the fourth herpes virus, which was discovered within amphibians. And all these herpes viruses actually are within the genus. Now, we know we could actually cluster them within the genus of the Batraco virus, which the taxonomy has been recently changed, but this is actually the older name. And so probably most of the people are familiar with this. And you mentioned that there's so many different species of frogs. What kind of frogs was rented herpes virus 3 found on? Yeah, originally we found this virus on the common frog and the classic grass frogs, essentially, and the so-called rana temporaria as a scientific name. Instead, additionally to this, we also found the same virus on the so-called agile frog, which is a common name for rana dalmatina. So we know that we found we can find actually this virus at least on two different species of frogs. However, we don't know if these are the only two species that might be susceptible to this virus or actually others uh, could be susceptible. And this is actually something that we're trying to investigate at the moment. So the spectrum of this herpes virus. And you mentioned Switzerland, and that's where you did your study. But where particularly there were they found? We found uh, these infected frogs in different regions in Switzerland, originally in the north eastern portion, but now let's say we realize that there's multiple regions in Switzerland where actually we can find this virus. However, as I said, it looks like that it's pretty widespread in Europe. We actually have preliminary results suggesting that the virus could be present in France, in Italy, in Germany, in the UK, and in other countries again. So let's say it looks like pretty much really widespread. It would make sense with the distribution of these frogs. When we talk about, for example, common frog is really widespread 
all around Europe. So if this virus, for example, would have co-evolved with this host, it would really make sense that the virus might be present essentially along most of the area of the territory where the species of frogs actually are from. So, and we would expect to find this virus in other regions. And so it would be really interesting then to understand if there would be differences, okay, genetic differences among the different strains of this herpes virus. And frogs have some stages of life. What stage of life were the frogs in when you found the virus? The very first uh, finding, so when we observed for the first time the presence of this virus, we found this virus on post-metamorphic basically individuals. So as we all know, frogs undergo essentially during their development, we can divide actually their development into different stages. So we have a pre-metamorphic and a post-metamorphic stage. The pre-metamorphic essentially is the classic tadpole stage is what we can find actually is actually, let's say, the, the stage that is really necessarily bound to water. And as soon as instead the tadpoles complete their metamorphosis, we have the froglets. And at that point, the frog essentially leaves the ponds, leaves the water. I mean, still has to be bound, but not strictly to water environment. And at that point, essentially, the frog just grows till it reaches its adult size. And at the moment, what we have observed is that the lesions, which are associated with this virus, so these, with these gray patches, are, which corresponds actually to areas of uh, epidermal hyperplasia, which essentially is the thickening of the epidermis. We have observed those essentially on uh, post-metamorphic individuals. So basically, let's say on the frog, uh, the classic, uh, when, when morphologically the frog has really the classic aspect. So let's say it's not anymore a tadpole, but a tadpole, but actually has the classic uh, aspect with the limbs. And so it's the classic jumping frogs, just to make uh, things very easy. Okay, we're talking about die-off here of frogs. Um, do we know what effects this virus, this particular virus, is having on frogs besides the lesions? Yeah, um, this is actually a very important question. And I would like to, first of all, clarify one aspect, which is actually, at the moment, we know that these viruses are associated invariably with these lesions. And so we think that there might be a causative link, but we haven't been able to demonstrate yet a causative relationship or a causative association, although we strongly believe this, and actually this is something that we're really working on. With all said, what we have is that this virus, this herpes virus, is associated with this skin thickening, so these patches which develop on the skin. The question is, do these lesions have a clinical impact on the frog? Is this something that is going to impact the frog in some way. Well, if you think about it, the skin of the frog is a very important organ. Through the skin, frogs exchange fluids, exchange oxygen, exchange electrolytes. And so it's really a vital part of the body and the physiology. The whole physiology of the frog is really very much dependent of a good health of the skin. So we can assume that these lesions, which in some individuals may be very, very, very severe and pretty diffuse, we can assume actually that some impact is going to be there. We don't really know the extent of this impact. However, the question is, you know, is it going to kill or not the frog? And if it does not kill the frog, maybe let's say, I don't know, might predispose the frog 
to other infectious agents or essentially might, for example, reduce the fitness of these frogs. Let's imagine, I, I don't, these are clearly examples, okay? Because the interesting thing is this, we often consider an infectious agent dangerous or problematic only if this agent kills. However, when we talk about wildlife, if we have infectious agents that might not necessarily kill the individuals, but if they would reduce their fitness, and for fitness, I mean their well-being in general, Let's imagine that, I don't know, an agent is going to be able to reduce the replication fitness, so basically the, the reproductive fitness. So infected animals might, for example, reproduce less successfully. Well, in this case, we're not going to see a die-off. But what we might see after 10, 15, 20 years, we may see a crash in the population, which we didn't necessarily see coming. And this might just be because, let's say, we haven't seen pile of dead animals here and there, but essentially it was a very cryptic problem, which anyway at some point became visible. So the question with runny herpes virus 3 is that we really don't know if, or actually what kind of impact, let's say, it has on the frogs. However, even if we would realize that this virus doesn't kill frogs, this does not necessarily mean that its impact on the frogs is absolutely zero, or actually, let's say, that has no really clinical relevance on it. So this is really something we are working on and we really would like to try to understand a little bit more about it. So what is the actual impact of this virus on these frogs? So along these same lines, do we understand the actual pathogenesis of this virus? Yeah, we know a little bit more, or actually every year we are learning something more, because as I said, we started essentially from scratch. And so at the beginning, we we found this virus and we little by little we characterize this virus from the molecular side using molecular tools to really understand what for example its genome was carrying with it and if we could learn something from its genome about its potential virulence its potential activity and pathogenesis and then we looked also on the host side so basically on the frog what was going on and so what we learn is that, as I said before, the, this virus is associated with this proliferation of the skin. So basically what happens is that when the virus is in the, in the frog, it looks like that it localizes essentially within the epidermis. And once it localizes in the epidermis, we have this epidermal thickening, this proliferation. Why do we have this? We don't know. But what it looks like is that the virus really replicates in this thicker epidermis. And even more interesting, if you look at the lesions which are really associated with this virus in the epidermis, you can literally draw a line. And so you have, you can see that in the upper portion of the epidermis, there is the virus replicating with all the damage actually which are associated with this replication. In the lower layer of the epidermis, funny enough, there's really no virus that can be detected and there's no tissue damage. Later on, we observed that in the infected animals, this upper layer starts to undergo degeneration and progressively is left off. And so at the end, the virus is not detectable anymore in the epidermis. 
However, what we think is that this virus might hide somewhere. Herpes viruses, as a matter of fact, are well-known organisms which are able to hide within the host that they have infected. And they're able to hide in a form which is called latency. Latency is a sort of a dormant stage, okay? So basically, during this stage, the virus itself is kind of silent, but is present and is ready to come up, okay, and come out again, essentially, as soon as the environment, as soon as the conditions, as soon as it's possible. And uh, so we think that uh, there might be a seasonality, okay, in the disease associated with this virus, and that infected frogs may undergo cycle of diseases associated with the season. What we don't know is if during one of the cycles something can happen to the frogs and so the virus might go somehow out of control and maybe eventually cause severe disease or actually death in the frogs. So this is actually something that we know, but we are missing a very crucial part at the moment or we were missing because now, let's say, what we found and we have published in the, in the current paper actually on emerging infectious diseases, we're starting to fill in this hole, meaning that we don't know how the frogs actually get infected. And now we are understanding a little bit more, and this is where we're really focusing right now. And why did you do this study? What alerted you to anything? What were you looking for? And that's exactly, let's say, the follow-up, let's say, of the of the previous question. So. We were trying, and we're trying, okay, to complete, ideally, this pathogenic path of the virus. The big question is and was, how does the frogs get infected by the virus? So we actually have been running a transmission study using live virus and infecting post-metamorphic frogs, and we could not reproduce the disease. And so we started to think that maybe the adult or actually post-metamorphic stage maybe was not the proper stage for the virus to be able to infect the frogs. Reading in the literature, back in the 70s, there has been lots of investigation on another frog herpes virus, which was called Ronit herpes virus 1. This Ronit herpes virus 1 was discovered in the leper frogs in the U.S. And a number of studies showed that this virus was causing a tumor in kidneys. And this became a very, very investigated virus because back in those days, it was the first herpes virus which was actually linked to a neoplastic disease. Then also, let's say, as concerned human herpes viruses, actually this has been shown. But at that time, this was kind of a unique example. And uh, researchers actually tried to infect frogs with this virus in multiple ways. And none of them was basically were able to do it except when working on the larval stage, actually, let's say on the embryonal stage of the frog. So the very, very early developmental stages. So essentially right after hatching. So injecting these larval and embryonal stages actually with the virus, then they were able to reproduce the disease. But if the virus was actually injected in adult frogs, nothing was happening. And so we started to think that actually maybe we were supposed not necessarily to look just at the post-metamorphic stages, but actually, let's say, to the larval one, so the previous one, to the tadpole level. 
And uh, that's what we were looking for. We were looking, we were trying to see if we could find the virus in the tadpole stages, because if we would have been, we would have been able to find this, then this would have been a very important evidence suggesting that the infection would have occurred not at the post-metamorphic stages, actually, but very early in life. And this is what we were looking for. You've done some previous investigations on frogs. I think you mentioned that already. Uh, you want to tell us about that a little bit? Yes, and this is how we got to this point. I've been always very much interested in poikilotherms, so the so-called cold-blooded vertebrate. So and we talk about, in this case, reptiles, amphibians, and fish. And concerning uh, amphibians, we have done several investigations on frogs, always, let's say, linked to uh, infectious agents. And as I said, we have investigated the nature of this virus, basically of Rani herpes virus 3, of the Oni herpes virus 1, at the molecular level. And for example, we have discovered a very interesting thing. It looks like that these viruses contain in their genome very special genes, which are putatively able to encode for proteins have immunomodulating effect on the immune system of their host, so basically of frogs and toads. So this is really very interesting because it looks like that not only the impact of the virus or of the disease on the frog might not necessarily just depend on the nature of the infectious agent itself. So basically it's a virus and so it can infect the host. But let's say the virulence of it and so the impact that the virus can have on the frogs may depend also, let's say, on these elements. So it's like if the virus has learned that if it has specific tools that can somehow, okay, prevent the frog to respond with its immune uh, reactivity, let's say, to the infection, well, let's say the virus seems that has learned that actually may have a, a kind of an easier life and can carry out its infection, let's say, in an easier way. And so we're really trying now also to investigate this aspect of it. So basically, to what extent these genes, to what extent these uh, encoded proteins actually may have an impact on that. And I think that, you know, this really opens up a very fascinating scenario and research field actually that would like to investigate. And even more, if you think about this thickening of the epidermis, it's a proliferative disease. And for example, tumors are proliferative disease. The main difference is that an hyperplasia, as we see in these frogs, is kind of a sort of a relatively benign proliferative process. Instead, a tumor is a, instead of can be a very malignant process. Well, if we would learn, for example, what are the, the buttons, the steps, which this infection goes through in order to cause this proliferation, well, for example, we may learn also something about cancer in people, in animals. We know that there are actually viruses which can cause cancer. If you think about papillomavirus, can do that. And if you look at the lesions that papillomaviruses actually cause to animals, to people, well, morphologically speaking, it's very similar to what, let's say, to the lesions that actually we can see when in frogs, in fact, with the herpes virus. So we really think that we're going to learn a lot, okay, from these infections, this herpes virus, and actually in amphibians, not only in terms of conservation, but also in terms of comparative pathology 
comparative immunology. So I think that there's a really a lot that we can learn from frogs, and this can go really far beyond what we originally imagined. Is there anything about how you went about this investigation that you want to say more about? Yeah, this specific investigation, the detection of this uh, runny herpes virus 3 in Ranotemporaris of common frog tadpoles, as I said, is an investigation that started, or that the idea started, let's say, to check if uh, we could have found the virus in the tadpoles. And so this whole thing started thanks to a collaboration with the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research, and specifically with Dr. Annette Taugvold, who was actually the co-author of this article. And so discussing what we could have done, because, I mean, our collaboration started originally because of some testing of the frogs. I mean, in Norway, they observed similar lesions. So you can see we were talking about, you know, where we do see, let's say, this disease well. We know that at least, I mean, right now, the upper north limit that we have found so far is actually Norway. And so when we learn about this, we start discussing about what kind of investigation we could have done. And I was saying that, you know, we really don't know how this virus actually infects this, uh, this frogs. And most of all, we really don't know at what stages it does. And so we had the chance to sample a uh, different population of, of frogs in ponds where we knew that there were infected frogs. So we collected these tadpoles and we checked for the presence of the virus by PCR, so basically by molecular methods and by histology, so looking specifically at the tissues to see if there was any kind of changes that we could actually have detected and, and that would have uh, let us understand a little bit more about this virus and the pathogenesis. So that's how we went along for this, uh, for this investigation. And is there anything about what you found that you haven't covered yet? Yeah, and what we found, as I said before, I mentioned before, actually, is that we found that this virus was present in tadpoles. And this is really something exciting because we thought about it, but we were not sure that we would have found it. Also, because we really didn't know, for example, how many of these tadpoles might have been infected, how extensive, let's say, is the infection within these larval stages. We didn't know if we were looking at the right bond or at the right population. So there has been also a significant part of luck in our investigation. But I think that, you know, this hopefully sometimes happens. So this is actually really the main result of this investigation. So we can finally say that the virus can, in fact, frogs at their pre-metamorphic stage. And this is really very important. Let's talk about people here for a second. People can get herpes virus from each other, certainly. Is it possible that children playing and grab a frog or anybody? Can you can people get this from the frogs? We don't really have any element at the moment to really think or have a, any specific concern in this direction. The herpes virus actually, which in fact, frogs and amphibians in general are very different from the herpes viruses that infect people. As a matter of fact, they belong to a different family. So Herpes viruses are comprised in three main families. So we have the family of the herpes viridae, which actually includes essentially all herpes viruses infecting people. And then we have the second of this family instead is the family which includes herpes virus, which in fact fish and amphibians. And we're talking about the family of the alloherpes viridae. So although we are talking about herpes viruses in both cases, so herpes virus which infects people and herpes virus which infects amphibians, 
we're talking about very different viruses. And another important aspect to consider is that, as far as we know, frog herpes viruses requires relatively low temperature to develop and replicate. And these temperatures are very different from the temperature that a human being would have. So the 37 Celsius, which is actually the common you know, temperature that, uh, physiological temperature actually that we have in people is very, very far away from the temperature range where the frog herpes virus probably would thrive, which we believe are actually probably across 10 Celsius, a little bit less or a little bit more than 10 Celsius. So the virus, besides being very different, and so would have tremendous difficulty to adapt to humans. However, even if, let's say, we would imagine this hypothetical infection, probably this would be an abortive infection, meaning that the virus wouldn't be able to cause a productive infection because it wouldn't be able to replicate at this temperature. So from this point of view, I think that kids playing with frogs probably are not going to run any specific risk as concerned running herpes virus 3. As concerned other pathogens, that's another story. So we've talked about some really important things here. Are there one or two most important aspects of this public health-wise you want to mention? One of the most important things that we found in this investigation, so let's say the uh, understanding, knowing that the virus can infect tadpoles, opens up an entire venue in terms of investigation, in terms of assessment. Why? Because, you know, we were talking about before the impact that this virus may have on frogs. And uh, we have seen that and we are realizing that maybe on the adult frogs, so basically on the post-metamorphic frogs, its impact might not be a little impact, although we don't know if, as we said before, might cause some problem in terms of fitness, so it might impact negatively the frog anyway. Now that we know that the virus can infect tadpoles, it's a completely different game. Why? Because traditionally and historically, we know that herpes viruses actually are more likely to cause more severe disease or problems in uh, young individuals. For example, there are fish herpes viruses which can cause death in very young individuals, whereas not in adult individuals, although they can cause disease in the adults. So if you think about it in terms of conservation, it's really very important. Why? Because in this case, we can really go and monitor tadpole populations. And now with molecular tests, we can really easily assess the presence of the virus. And so now we're going to have a tremendous tool to really to go investigating if this virus can cause any problem at the tadpole's level. So if this infection, for example, is associated with death. So let's imagine, I don't know that, uh, I'm just going to throw numbers here. This is all hypothetical. But let's imagine that, you know, this virus may cause, I don't know, 20% death in the uh, infected population in tadpoles. I mean, these are really numbers which actually may have an impact at some point, let's say on the survival of the population, especially if we add this to other problems, other stressors that frogs actually may have may have to endure. So I think that this is really the, the great aspect and the important aspect of the results we got from this investigation. That now we really, let's say, besides having learned something more and something very important about the pathogenesis, now we also know where to look for. So far, we have essentially just concentrated on the adult frogs. 
Now we're going to concentrate on the larval stages and see really what happens there and see if the, really this virus may cause issues, may cause problems to these frogs at this level, at this stage of development. And we really think that we're very excited about it because I think that this could really be instrumental for conservation of these frogs. Well, that seems to open up to my next question. What further studies would you like to see done? A transmission study would be very important now. So we know that, okay, tadpoles can get infected. Now we would like to know at what stage, okay, because, I mean, the tadpoles go through, let's say, very, very significant developmental changes before completing the metamorphosis. And so it might happen that the virus actually is going to be able to infect the tadpoles only at a specific level or at a specific stage of the development or at multiple stages. And so this is something that really we would like to understand. And so when the tadpole gets infected, what changes do occur in the tadpoles in the sense, is this infection somehow followed by kind of a sort of an immediate silencing of the virus? So is the virus undergo latency immediately afterwards? And so to the tadpoles, probably nothing happens until it completes its metamorphosis, or is it going to cause disease? Is it actually going to cause tissue lesions in the tadpole? So is the tadpole going to die after the infection? So these are all things that we really need to figure out. And ideally, the condition that may favor, so we have said before about temperature, okay? So we really would like to see a little bit more kind of pinpoint the temperature where this can happen. So we know we're going through this environmental global warming. And we really don't know how this global warming may impact this infectious agents, which are very, very much dependent on the temperature to, you know, as concern their potential of infection, of course, the disease and things like that. So we really don't know what's going to happen. So there's lots of things that we really would like to look at. And also on the host side, as concern instead, let's say the post-metamorphic frogs, we really would like to look a little bit more into the uh, dynamic of this skin thickening, so how the skin thickening happens. And so if we really can learn something about tumor that actually, you know, potentially we could use also in a translational way, also in human medicine, this would be fantastic. So this is actually the way we would like to go. You and I had a wonderful conversation about fungus and snakes in October of 22. Does your study of frog fungus and pathogens relate to this topic? Yeah, I remember that. I really enjoyed this. There's not really a direct association or actually a direct link in terms of uh, the different type of agents, but there is actually, there are a number of links, a number of associations, that's for sure. What we have done with snake fungal disease and so investigating ophidiomyces and snakes um, goes exactly in the same direction as concerns the work that we're doing with frogs and other amphibians, which is really investigating infectious diseases understanding what is their role, what is their significance, okay, in what we call the disease ecology of these animals. And so this really is our main goal and this is our uh, approach. So look for agents, try to characterize them, try to put them in context with the host. Are they just there or are they causing some problem? And if this problem is happening, what kind of impact can have on the population? So what can we do in order to kind of mitigate this problem? What kind of management recommendation we actually we can come up with, we can provide it to the people on, on the ground, the people that say in the field, in order to try to minimize the impact of this problem. And yes, there's also a link in terms of possible complementation 
between these pathogens or these infectious agents. I'm going to make a brief example. We said before that we really don't know, we're not sure how severe the impact of this runny herpes virus 3 is on the overall health of frogs. Well, if, for example, we have said that this virus actually has immunomodulating or putative immunomodulating genes. So if the infection with this virus somehow can manipulate the immune response of the infected frogs, well, maybe these infected frogs might become more susceptible to other agents, like, for example, chytrid, so actually fungi. So this is actually something that we're going to try, let's say, to tackle and to really understand a little bit more. So in bottom line, yes, they look like distant topics, but at the end, they're very, very close to each other and they're very much interconnected. You're clearly involved in some really fascinating work. Can you tell us about what you do and your work in general? Yeah, this investigation are an integral part of my interest, my passion and my work. As I said, I'm a microbiologist and I'm a pathologist, and I'm very, very much interested in wildlife, and especially in, as I said before, in poikilotherms, so actually in the so-called cold-blooded animals, and in particular amphibians and reptiles. And I've been working, and I'm still working at the University of Bern, and now I have recently, I mean, I got an appointment at the University of Messina in Italy where we're starting to develop the same program. And uh, the idea is really this, is try, let's say, to keep going and try to get as many people, as many students involved in this. I think that is very important uh, to get young people. In, I mean, young people are extremely sensitive to these topics, conservation, you know, global health, planetary health. And so I really hope to be able to keep going in this direction and try to answer to this question. And hopefully, let's say, while answering to this question, hopefully contributing a little bit, okay, to the conservation of this incredible animals that are anyway part of our life in, in some way. I think that each of us has been probably, at least when we were kids, to a pond probably played with frogs and toads and, and tadpoles. So, and are an extremely important part of, uh, of the environment, of the ecology. So I think that it's really very, very much important. And uh, to really, let's say, work on this, on these animals. It's not very easy because uh, very often funding agency, when you write grants, they have, I mean, lots of priorities, of course. And unfortunately, up to now, this was not one of the priorities, but it is becoming, and I'm very, very happy about this. I think the funding agents are becoming very, very much sensitive. And I think it's really, we're getting into a great time, into a great really season, okay, to work on this. And I hope that more and more people will get interested in, in working in this and hopefully contributing, as I said, a little bit to the conservation of these animals. Is there any one disease or possible consequence of disease that keeps you awake at night? Yeah, I can answer your questions in two ways. What actually keeps me awake is for sure the disease that we haven't discovered yet, that actually the pathogen that we haven't discovered yet that is just out there. And if we unfortunately would put these agents in the condition to do damage, then this would be really a big problem. And so let's say one of my concern really is to, how do you say, be able to see the rain before the storm. And so let's say this is actually what really keeps me awake at night and keeps me really going in the lab. Try really not to give anything for granted. Try, let's say, to really understand or try to understand anything, okay, that is out there and that maybe we cannot really make sense of it right now. We just, we just can ignore its actual potential. But the potential might be there. So 
this is actually really, really something very important. And more specifically, as I was mentioning before, one of the skittrits, okay, Bistal is really recognized as a very, very aggressive agent. And surely the uncontrolled, let's say, spread and diffusion of this agent would be a really a complete disaster and a global disaster. So hopefully this will not happen. And so, as I said, there's probably lots of agents we, we're not aware of or that we know, but we are completely unaware about their actual potential that are also, let's say, in my opinion, very important to keep in check. Well, this has certainly been a very interesting topic and conversation, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me today about it, Dr. Origi. Thank you very much, Sarah. It has been really great. Thank you for this opportunity. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the June 2023 article, Ranid Herpavirus 3 Infection and Common Frog Rana Tempororia Tadpoles, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.